Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod here in Orlando with new basketball Hall of Famer Grant Hill on the cusp of his induction ceremony in Springfield early next month. We talk about his entire journey to the Hall in what will be really a memorable class, including Jason Kidd, Steve Nash, several of Grant's contemporaries. Tremendous visit with the great Grant Hill. Here's our conversation. Here with Grant Hill, who will be part of the 2018 NBA Hall of, well, Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame class, and it is some lineup. Uh, Steve Nash, and your contemporary, Steve Nash, uh, Jason Kidd, Ray Allen, and of course, Lefty Drizel, who was a kid growing up in the ACC, you knew, and, and you go down the line, and everybody says, when I got the call for the Hall of Fame, I was surprised. I never expected it. I was humbled. Your career was a little different. It was at your very best. You were the very best, but it was limited by injury. Did that part of it make you wonder whether you would get in? You know, it, it did make me wonder. I, I figured I'd get in. I didn't think I'd get in. I wasn't entirely sure I'd get in on the first ballot. Mm. I remember when, when Ralph Sampson, who uh, you and I both are old enough to remember how great he was in college and, and had a, a pretty good first few years in the NBA and then, you know, obviously had injuries. He, he got in. And so now, granted, that was years after he retired. So, you know, I, yep. I, I kind of thought, well, maybe it would happen mm-hmm. at some point. But And then when the rules changed last year where it went from you had to be five years removed from playing to four years removed, now that made Steve Nash, it made Ray Allen eligible, and I'm thinking it's yeah. going to be tough. Uh, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't entirely sure. Um, and you're right, I did have a, a very kind of unusual career, sort of those Duke Detroit years, I guess from from '90 to 2000, and then you know Orlando, and then Phoenix, and so so anyway. Regardless, I'm I'm happy it happened, and I'm happy I got the call. Uh, from from John DeLiva, but I, I wasn't. It wasn't like Allen Iverson or Shaq, you know, these guys who say they were surprised, but you know, they, right. they we all knew they were going in. I, I was a little bit unsure. And, and two, and Bill Walton is another one. And you had to me the comparable with you and Bill Walton were how dominant, how much winning, and how much individual success you both had in college. And we may never see a four year career again, like. You had at Duke. And I wonder if it's funny, you, you think back, was there ever at any point in your Duke career a moment where you said, I, after sophomore, junior year, where you said, or freshman year, said, I, I think I might go, or did it never really occur to you? You know, it never occurred to me. I, I, I didn't think about the NBA until the end of my junior year when my roommate, Thomas Hill, uh, and then Bobby was a year ahead, they were getting ready you know, for the draft, they were working out, they were flying off to, to work out with different teams. Uh, and I'm thinking like, wow, like, next year I'll be going through this, you know, and, and it, that's when it really kind of dawned on me, which is so different than what we have now, the environment uh, now. But yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I also don't think the NBA was, it was as accessible. Like you didn't get as much NBA information it was before, you know, before 
you know, the Internet age and, and technology mm-hmm. and you, you had games on the weekend and on NBC and then you Turner on Thursday nights. So you weren't kind of inundated with all this NBA stuff. And so really I lived in that college basketball world and that was what you saw. That's what you heard. That's what you that's what you did. I do think, though, when I did come out in 1994, that's when it started to kind yeah. of happen where everyone was leaving early. I think you win the national championship in each of your first two years. And now if R.J. Barrett or Zion Williamson, you know, if they win the national championship at Duke as freshmen, it'll be, you know, they'll be saying goodbye at the press. Whether they win or not, I'm sure they'll be one and done. <laughs> I know you can't talk about that. You're right. you're an executive uh, or you're in ownership of the team. But you'd almost look back and say, oh, yeah, well, I won – so my job's done here. I won a championship. That's great. It was not even part of the thinking then. It wasn't. Look, I mean, if if you took our team and our guys and you fast forward to present day, I, I never would have played with Christian Leitner. You know, he would have been gone. He was two years ahead of me. I was a junior, obviously, when I was a freshman. I never would have had the chance to play with Leitner. Probably never would have played with Bobby Hurley. And, and so – that is the difference. But I, I do think, in, in part, that's why many, many years later, I mean, I'm, I'm still amazed that 25 years later, 25-plus years later, people still remember. Yeah. They remember those teams um, because we were there for four years. And I remember when I, when I graduated, Coach K's wife, Mama K, said to me, and I don't have the exact numbers, but she said, you know, Grant of the – 124 college basketball games you played here at Duke, you know, 120 of them were on national television. And so people uh, identified uh, you with with Duke. They they saw you, whether they liked Duke or they hated Duke. We were good. We were on TV. We were relevant. And and people remember that. And and essentially, I don't know if people will remember some of these one-and-done teams 20 years from now. Uh, after they left uh, their respective schools. Yeah, you know what I think was is maybe reflective of that too, Grant, is, and this hadn't been done before then and it hasn't been done since, you were the number one vote-getter in all-star voting as a rookie in the NBA. Shaq was a star already in the NBA. You beat Shaq playing in Detroit. And I would think, now part of it was you came out and you were co-rookie of the year, you, you played great out of the gates, but I would think a Another big part of that was people knew you. Right. Where some of these young guys were coming in, they didn't even get to the NCAA tournament. We had two straight number one overall picks and Markel Fultz and Ben Simmons who yeah. didn't didn't play in March Madness. Right. And your second year you were the number one vote getter. I, I don't think that could happen now. And that was Michael Jordan was in the second year in ninety six. Yeah. No, um you're right. And I, I remember to get back to that point with, with Mama Kay, she was saying that, you know, whatever the hottest sitcom was, I don't know, Cheers or whatever. What Like, we were on TV more than the, the actors or more than those folks who were on those respective shows. And so you're right. People saw us. I mean, I played uh, in, in, in three NCAA championship games. And I was fortunate to win two of them. And, you know, we know March Madness. We know people stop and watch that and are, are, are just captivated by it. You know, they're still doing documentaries about – uh, various teams and, and personalities from that era. And there's a reason for that. And and those images, those experiences, those memories, I think will, will always be there for, for a certain, you know, certain generation. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I was able to ride that wave. I benefited more than anyone. When I came in, people knew me and the league had a bit of a void. It was sort of this post Jordan, you know, 1994 after his first retirement. 
And I came in, I played well right away, and it's just sort of kind of a, a perfect storm where even it exceeded my own sort of expectations and, and, and also just goals for my first year, uh, just in terms of the popularity. And it was overwhelming, uh, to say the least. But uh, I think the timing of it and I think the benefit of, of playing on that stage for four years in college certainly helped. Grant, one thing I have always wondered about, and we've never talked about it, is the rookie of the year, you and Jason Kidd came in in the same class. You were co-rookies of the year. I have never, ever bought the idea that there was the exact same amount of votes, that someone didn't win and someone didn't lose, that that's how the vote was split. Did you accept that, that literally there were the same amount of votes? You know, I'm glad someone else. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I demand a recap. Um, it's interesting. If you go back to the, I mean, I think that year I got off to a really good start and I got a lot of momentum and, and, and then Jason started having a lot of triple doubles towards the end of the year. And then you, you also have to take into consideration big dog. I mean, Glenn Robinson mm-hmm. in Milwaukee, he was 21, 22 points a game as a rookie. Um, and so I don't know. I, I was a little bit, it was a nail biter down the stretch. I mean, obviously neither one of us, uh, all three of us, none of our teams were good enough to be in the playoffs. And so, you know, you're kind of trying to play for, you know, trying to put up good numbers down the stretch. I was surprised, not, I was surprised that it was co-rookie because I, I'd never, I didn't think that it ever happened. Now, I guess it did happen once before, but the thing that people don't realize, Jason and I were, were, were close. Like we were, probably closer then than we are now but we were very close and and you know just sort of getting to know each other after they beat us and got lucky and beat us my my junior year through the draft process and then our rookie year we just really kind of became friends and I would watch him play and he'd watch me play so I didn't look at it with any kind of animosity or you know being upset um I was like you know what that's my guy I'm, I'm good with that and um, and so it's, you know, I think because of that, because of the Hall of Fame class, because we retired like the same within 48 hours, like we're, we're kind of forever connected, connected. Um, yeah. I apologize to him about that at the Hall of Fame <laughs> uh, announcement back in March or back in April. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, it'd be interesting. I, I, I'd really have to kind of go back and look at that season and look at the numbers and look at what teams did. You know, I kind of thought it was mine to lose, and I guess I, I kind of partially lost it. But um, if I have to share it with somebody, I, yeah, I there's, don't there's mind. there's got to be a file somewhere in the league office, right? With <laughs> well, the tabular. Well, if anyone would know, it'd be you, Woj. No, I don't know. No, I don't, do not have access to those. Grant, you're a parent now, and you have kids involved in sports. Um, the way they participate is different than the way you did as a kid. But like your kids – their dad played professional sports. Your dad played professional football. Do you have a different, not necessarily better, or a different appreciation for how your parents raised you, and maybe specifically in context with sports? It is not easy to have your dad be Calvin Hill. And how they handled the relationship you had, how they, what they pushed or didn't push or let you be, how that all played out back then. Yeah, I mean, I think it, one, it helped that I didn't play football. I didn't follow him. And, and certainly that, you know, I mean, there's still comparisons. There's still expectations. There's still pressures that I felt. Um, I, I think I was fortunate that I was was good. I mean, I was, you know, 
we won a national championship at 13 and under AAU when AAU was a lot different uh, than it is now. Um, but my parents, I'll say this, as it relates to sports, they exposed me to a lot. I got a chance to see uh, my father when he played. Uh, he retired when I was 10, 11 years old. Uh, so I, I had a chance to have access, see professional athletes, be around other you know, colleagues, contemporaries of his. Um, and as I started to, to pursue sports, there was never any pressure. There was never any, you know, sort of little league parent demanding that I, you know, I missed a free throw, so I got to take 100 free throws. Or They never pushed me to do anything. Now, I was naturally uh, very active, naturally interested in sports and and uh, and definitely tried a lot of different things. They might classify it as a hyperactive or, you know, I, mean, I was one of those kids, but they never put that pressure on me. I don't think they ever expected me to be good. At, like they, I don't think they ever it dawned on them that I would have a career in sports or even go to college and, and play in sports. You know, maybe not until I got to high school. So I didn't feel that. And as a parent, I'm very sensitive to my own daughters and the expectations and the pressures that are there having, you know, having a father and a grandfather. And so I'm just hands off. I might offer a suggestion once a blue moon, but I'm just supportive parent who doesn't know anything. And I'm just there to be, you know, clap and cheer and have fun. You you were a double major at Duke history, poli science. Did you go in there with the idea that I'm going to do that or that come along the way? You know, Woj, <laughs> yeah, I, I, growing up in, in the Washington, D.C. area, obviously politics was, I like to say, the main sport and was always a topic of conversation. My parents were very politically active. So um, there was the, the thought process that, yeah, maybe politics. My dad was a history major. So those were two areas of interest uh, for me that I, that I pursued and wanted to pursue when I got to Duke. But the idea of the NBA, you asked about it in terms of, you know, just thinking, do I have a chance? Like, it it didn't even dawn on. Like, NBA was not even in the uh, conversation. I remember a week before my freshman orientation, I, I was concerned that I wasn't good enough to play at Duke. And I called Tommy Amaker up, and he was the assistant coach at Duke then, now the head coach at Harvard. And I said, Tommy, I'm, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't know if I can compete in the classroom at a school like Duke. So, you know. I think I may want to transfer to George Mason. And no offense to George Mason. is a great school, regional school there in Northern Virginia, close to where I grew up. But I didn't, I mean, I didn't come in with this sort of, you know, I'm going to be the best player in, in college and I'm going to be in the league in a couple of years. I, I, I was unsure entering, you know, at my freshman year that I could actually play at this level. And, you know, and, and so, you know, obviously I started right away and I played and I excelled. And that was part of one of my issues and, my flaws was was confidence and having you know lacking confidence in myself, uh, and I think part of my four year journey at Duke was was gaining that confidence and and really being ready mentally and emotionally for those pressures and responsibilities as a top pick in the NBA. You know, it's funny I I mentioned earlier I, I talked to Bobby Hurley earlier this morning who is your teammate and coaches at Arizona State now and he was talking about you as a teammate and he said the one thing you never did was demand the ball. You never did that. You didn't come in doing that and, and you weren't doing that on your way out. That you, for a player of your stature, in a lot of ways you were just trying to fit in. Right. No, no question. And, and I think that was sort of my personality. And 
coach always was trying to push me to do more. And I just, the way I played, the way I felt like the right way to play was to be able to blend in and, and, and still stick out and still uh, add value to the team and, and, and help a team win. But coming in, like, I need my 20 shots. You know, I got to have, like, I didn't, that wasn't, I, I think I learned how to do that. And I think, like, I, I, particularly when Bobby left. When Bobby left, now it's my team. Now it's my responsibility. And that was sort of how Duke was run back then, where it was a, the seniors' team. The team took on their personality. And, and I remember <laughs> I remember we had, uh, you know, there was always this talk about me. I'm sort of this unassuming, you know, college superstar. And and then Coach, we went to, to, to have uh, lunch after my junior year, and he said, look, when you when you go home and your parents, you know, you know, there's, there's biscuits on the table. Don't take one, take two. <laughs> <laughs> but I became more comfortable in a weird kind of way with with being special, you know, and, and it's okay to be special. And, and maybe it had to do with my upbringing. Maybe it was just who I was as a personality. But that last year at Duke best prepared me for the responsibility and the expectation of being a top pick in the NBA. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Masterclass. Steph Curry's Masterclass is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to learn from one of the greatest shooters in NBA history. Masterclass offers online classes taught by the best in the world. In over four hours of movie-quality video sessions, Steph will teach you perfect shooting mechanics, footwork, and scoring techniques, break down specific drills that will make you a better ball handler, analyze NBA game footage to improve your basketball IQ. In addition to Steph's class, you can choose some classes taught by over 35 other masters, including Gordon Ramsay teaching cooking, Malcolm Gladwell teaches writing, and Ron Howard teaches directing. New classes are always being added across a wide range of fields such as music, cooking, writing, film, and many more. Whether you are pursuing your passion or developing your career, you'll find a masterclass perfectly suited for you. Masterclass has even been featured by the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and ESPN. And WojPod listeners can get Steph Curry's class or unlock access to every masterclass for a year right now at masterclass.com slash Woj. You'll gain unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price. That's masterclass.com slash Woj for unlimited access to Masterclass. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash Woj. What was or is Mike Krzyzewski's greatest gift as a coach? What separates him from everybody else? You know, I, I think there's a lot of gifts that he has, but his ability to get you to believe, get you to believe in, in, in one common goal and get different personalities to, to buy in. You know, that is his genius, at least in my opinion. Uh, getting you to believe as a recruit, believe in what he's building, his vision for the team, uh, how he'll use you and how he'll play you, to get you to buy in, to, to, to coexist as one unit. Uh, you've seen that, you know, consistently through the years at Duke over multiple generations, each generation, you know, the class of 2018 is a lot different than the class of 98. And, you know, it's funny, my mom, I used to ask my parents, my mom, who, 
thinks she knows everything about sports uh, and knows a lot. But I used to ask her, like, you know, as a Cowboy fan, why were they so dominant in the 60s and in the 70s? And then they kind of lost their way there in the 80s. And, and her opinion, and, and I don't mean to, you know, get all the, the Cowboy Nation upset at me, but in her opinion, she felt like Tom Landry could not connect with the modern athlete in the 80s. Mm-hmm. That athlete – their experiences, their backgrounds were very different than the athlete in the 60s and 70s. And so for Coach K to be able to adapt and adjust and still, you know, things are different, the environment's different, but the core tenets, the the beliefs, principles are all the same. And his ability to get you to believe. You saw it on display with USA Basketball. You saw it with LeBron and Kobe and Kidd and Wade and Melo. All these guys kind of bought in. And that had been a problem prior, yeah. and it was that's why Colangelo and Coach K took over. So, you know, th- th- that that moment against Kentucky when Sean Woods hit that shot—that's what I was going to ask you about. In that moment, do you feel that does that play happen because you have been—I don't know—trained is the word, but you've been surrounded by that feeling there all year, and then you know, two years. That allows that moment to happen that came. No question. And, and to me, that moment, that huddle after Woods hits that shot, I mean, at that moment, I thought we were done. And I'm thinking, you know, oh, we have beach week next week. And so, you know, <laughs> spring break. So, you know. It is amazing in moments of pressure like that, what goes through your mind well, when was, you look in, right? Yeah. Well, that was 19. Yeah. You know, what do you expect? <laughs> and, um, you know, when we walked out of that huddle, I believed. And what he did in that huddle, what he said, I still remember. I mean, I remember his body language. I remember how he spoke to us. He was calm. He was composed. I remember he asked me if I can throw the pass. He didn't tell me to throw it. And I took ownership and said, I can throw it. Uh, and I remember Leitner, you know, he asked Leitner if he can make the shot. And Leitner said, if Grant makes the pass, I'll make the shot, which was totally Leitner back in 1992. But Kay just, he has a, a way about him, a presence, something that's just hard to describe. You have to experience it. Where you believe, you believe in him. You believe if you, you know, if you do as he says, you'll have success. And I think that, in large part, I, I never looked at Coach as a as a as a as a guy who's the X and O's and is going to diagram great plays in that regard. He's just going to get you to believe. And you know, and for me, I had to sort of become comfortable with the idea of of being really good and being special and it's okay to stick out it's okay to be special and that was that was my own weird insecurity but you know we finally got there after four years it it was almost like a camelot experience in college almost there's no one who could really look back and say that they had very few in history who had you know some of the ucla guys can from different generations all you guys who played in the nba i would imagine Listen, you're making a lot of money and, and your life is transformed. But would you guys ever talk about this that certainly you weren't going to replicate what you had there, but nothing was ever the same. There was no team or environment that ever could. It was kind of downhill after that, right, in a lot of ways? Uh, yeah, I mean, in some respects, yeah. I mean, I, there were a couple of teams that I played on, maybe two teams uh, or two seasons where I felt like that spirit that we had, like that. In 19 years. In 19 years. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you that it was 1996, 97 in Detroit, and then the 2009, 2010 team in Phoenix, where, you know, you, you just felt like we were all, like, 
on the same page. It was genuine care for each other. We were connected. And so, you know, I mean, I was on some good teams. I was on some bad teams. I was on some teams that maybe had done better than others. But those were the two seasons in, in, in 19 years. And, and obviously I missed a few years playing, so I wasn't, you know, in Orlando. But that was, yeah. I mean, in some respects it was – it didn't get much better yeah. than those four years that I experienced in college. Grant, your first six years in the NBA before you dealt with injury, points, rebounds, assists – only Oscar Robertson, Larry Bird, LeBron James had better numbers in those first six years than you had. And you came at a time when every, well, not everybody, where people kept asking, who's the next Michael Jordan? Who, who's the next Jordan? And I thought you got, I don't know, saddled with it. You know, Kobe was coming into the league and LeBron was, you know, a ways away still, obviously. Did you hear that a lot? Did you feel it? Was it on your radar? I always felt like that was something that got pinned to you going in. And, and you didn't really play like Mike. Your mm. game was very different. You right. weren't necessarily always playing above the rim. But it was who's the next. Right. You got it. Yeah, I did get it. And, and there was a void. There was a void there. And and, and he came back and, and, and came back and was dominant. But that that label stuck with me. And I, I never was, on, was comfortable with it and, and kind of thought it was foolish because I – like the guy that I watched was magic. Like that was the player who, you know, I tried to emulate and obviously didn't have the flair, but his ability to, to have an effect on the game without even sometimes scoring. And obviously had different players around him and different personnel than I had at times in Detroit. But that was who, you know, look, bottom line, that's who you saw on TV. You know, back in the 80s, you, you saw Boston, you saw Lakers, and you saw a little bit of Philadelphia. But CBS on Sundays, that's what you would see. And right. so, you know, you became a Laker fan. And, and I loved the way he just had an impact on the game in all aspects. And now, I was a little bit more athletic. You know, I could get to the rim. I had a good first step. You know, I, I could, you know, sometimes fake it and have dunks that looked like Jordan, I guess. So I could see where maybe some of those comparisons were. But... I never felt like that was me. That wasn't my game. That wasn't who I was. And that wasn't how I liked to play. You know, I, I could go score, but I like to get others involved and play a complete game. When people want to put labels and say, you're this, you're the next this, how much, I think you always had a sense of exactly who you were. You were raised that way and in and, and your family and as a player that I would imagine that is really important when people want to make you into somebody you are not that you don't lose sense of that with yourself, that you're probably fighting that sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's tough. I mean, when you are young and you are wealthy and you have celebrity, <laughs> I mean, it can be sometimes a dangerous mix and a dangerous combination, and you sometimes can become a little bit self-absorbed. And people are telling you how great you are and, here are all these sort of heroes and idols, and now you're, you're getting more votes than them. And also, like all these things happening can be overwhelming. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think having a pretty solid foundation and and not, you know, my mom used to say as a kid, don't fear failure, fear success, because more people in life are ruined by it. And and obviously, we, we, there's loads of examples of that. And so I was just always aware of that, cognizant of that, you know, comfortable with who I am. And, and I think in some ways sports, you know, as we, you know, go through our and, – and forgive me, I'm in reflective mode now with the Hall of Fame, so you start thinking back yeah. to when you're young. But I think 
sports kind of validates you. It, it gives you a voice. It gives you a platform. It makes you kind of cool in a way, and just but it, it gives you it gives you confidence. And, and I think I think for me, I became more and more confident with who I was. And, and that sort of coincided with, you know, I think me being in the NBA and being in Detroit and maturing. And, you know, I, I like to say that I came of age sort of as, as hip-hop was coming of age and was sort of reflective of, of our generation. And one of the catchphrases was, you know, keep it real. And so, you know, I'm going to be real. I'm going to be me, you know, and, and, you know, and that's all I can be. And, and so I was comfortable with that and, and always, you know, and, and have been since then. But wasn't always. It took a while to get to that point. When you leave Detroit, 2000, you do the sign and trade, you go to Orlando, and you had had, I think, toward the end in Detroit, the ankle injury mm-hmm. began, and then, and then it escalated, and it became, you were losing seasons and mo- bulks of seasons there early in Orlando. When you look, if you look back, it, it was a storybook life. It had gone, you look back at how you grew up, and then at Duke, and then, you know, things we talked about early in the NBA. You hadn't had great team success, but you had great individual success, at right. least, in Detroit. And all of a sudden, like, for the first time, did it feel like for the first time there's just an adversity that I've been fortunate enough to not really have to face yet? Yeah, I mean, yeah. In the, in the big grand scheme of things, I guess my life was pretty charmed. <laughs> you know, I mean, people would, you know, coming up in basketball – you know, particularly when you're young, people would challenge you, and and you know you're, you're the son of a uh, of a professional athlete. So, but that that wasn't adversity. That was just normal competitiveness that occurs, you know, at the park when you're playing ball. And I held my own, so I, you know I'm good with that. But yeah, all of a sudden, you're on top of the world. I mean, my last year in Detroit, I really kind of started to figure it out. And it was just in the sense that the game had slowed down. I added some tools to my game. And I felt like I had a, a, a four- or five-year window where I could, you know, play at a real elite level, really entering my prime. And then all of a sudden you're hurt and you're a disappointment. And, you know, you, you have this big contract and, and you feel it. You sense it. And it's hard. And then the one thing you've done, like, you know, forget about the month. You just can't play. And, and, and so that was a dark time and that was a hard time. And, you know, it was, it was four years. I mean, it was four years where I was pretty much not playing and, uh, and then putting so much work and so much effort into it. Uh, and then feeling like I was kind of let down a little bit. The medical community, you know, in some ways betrayed me. And, and so that was hard. That was, that was hard. And at times I felt like, well, maybe, it's time. Maybe I should just, it's not meant to be. Um, you know, I got, had a bad incident with my last ankle injury yep. and, and, you know, almost died from yep. that. And, and so it was just, you know, in, in 2003 into 2004, I was probably going to retire. You, you had, so you mentioned it was in March of 2003, you had surgery to essentially, they, they kind of refractured your ankle tried another procedure with you, right. refractured your ankle, tried to align it with your leg bone. And then a few days after the surgery, what started to happen to you? Well, right after the surgery, I, you know, I asked the doctor sort of what happened. And, and he told me, you know, it, he said everything was great. You know, we had a little bit of, of difficulty closing the incision. And, I, you know, I'm, you know I'm, I took an anatomy of a lower extremity course. So I always was curious about surgery and just the body and all that. And he said, well... The skin loses its elasticity 
when you cut it open, heal it, cut it open, heal it, do it over and over again like we did, particularly in the ankle where there's not great blood flow. And so it was just one of those things I remembered. I was, you know, coming out of surgery. And so then, like you said, a few days later, my temperature was up to 104 plus. Um, my body was shaking. I didn't know what was happening. And we had just had our, our we had a one-year-old. Our, our oldest daughter was one. So we had all these thermometers in the house. Mm-hmm. Like I'm on the couch shaking. My arms are uncontrollable. My wife is thinking, I'm, you know, she's thinking I'm being dramatic. And at this point, she's totally over the idea of being Nurse Betty uh, or Nurse Tamia. Um, and so, you know, so she has like five or six thermometers and she's putting them in and she's like, that can't be right. You know, and she's and so she calls the team doctor and anyway, get rushed to the hospital. Turns out I was septic. And thankfully, she did rush me to the hospital. And that was when I got there. We actually went to the wrong hospital. So it was pretty funny now in retrospect. But um, we get to the hospital. She gets somebody with a wheelchair. They start wheeling me in, and she can't find the doctor. And I'm shaking my arms. My body's all uncontrollable. And come to find out we're at the wrong hospital. So oh, man. she says, get him back in the car. And, and so she's arguing with, the, with the, the folks at the hospital. Finally, I get back in the car. But we get to the hospital. I'm in intensive care. I'm strapped down. And at that moment, I thought I was going to die. Like, I thought I had pressure on my chest. Like, it was, it was, it was the craziest feeling ever. And all these, you know, nurses and doctors were in there. And, and so that was after coming through that, it was just like, is this really worth it? You know, is it worth trying to play, bump, you know, running your head, you know, keep running against the wall and getting the same result or getting a worse result just because I wanted to play? And I, I really thought about at that point in time after I, we found out what it was. We had to get a skin flap and take skin from my arm and all that. It was just kind of like, you know what, this this ain't worth it. And um, so that was that was the low low point. And uh, I didn't think I would. I didn't think I wanted to play anymore. What what changed? You know, you start having days of health. I mean, I think the one thing it did was it slowed me down. And and so now instead of okay trying to get back in seven months and working. Now I just, I took the whole 2003, 2004 year off and didn't do anything and, and, and went to games and, you know, and, and obviously my doctors, that was my, my doctor's orders. That was the team orders. I think the team actually kind of wanted me to probably secretly retire. And you started to see that in, over seven months and nine months and 11 months, you started feeling better and, and then you, you go for your, your, your checkup and you see the x-rays and the bones healing and it's getting better. And in, in a weird kind of way, the time off allowed the bone to heal mm-hmm. and which we had never really given it the opportunity to heal up. And so, and so yeah, at that point, a year later, you're like, now you're like, okay, I can play. I want to play. I want to get back. And, and so over the course of that season, um, I'll tell you another thing that helped was uh, Shaq, who I wasn't necessarily close with, and he was playing with the Lakers at the time, but we, we were, were neighbors mm-hmm. in Florida. And he gave me the key to his gym at his house. And so I'd go in there and just shoot free throws. Uh, sometimes I'd even turn the TV on. He had a big TV in the gym. Right. And I'd watch them play on the, on the, uh, on the West Coast while I'm just shooting free throws. And so, you know, that's not the main thing, but that, that played a role just getting back in the gym and, you know, just understanding this is what I love to do it. I love to play. And, and yeah, my ankle is finally healing up and getting right. 
And the great thing is I did come back and never had an ankle problem ever again. I had problems elsewhere as a result of the ankle, but my ankle, once it healed, it never gave me any, any issues going forward. Do you have to fight among a lot of things through that period, a sense of isolation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's so on point. You know, one of the, the beauties of playing team sports is that, you know, you're, you're in the locker room, you're one of the guys, you're on the team. And all of a sudden, you're 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 kind of ostracized. You're off to the side. You're not included in the group. You don't travel. There's a sense of loneliness when you're hurt. You know, when you're out for the season and you're not there, and and or you're you know you you have a season-ending injury, and you're still technically on the team, but you're not part of the group. That's hard. And you know, and also too, it's funny. We, my wife, who's a, who's a singer, was you know was busy during that time, and at times would be out on the road touring. And so she had a dog that came with the marriage, um, <laughs> Teacup Maltese. I want to definitely clarify it was her dog. Um, I adopted the dog, but um, and the dog's name was Sweetie, little white Teacup Maltese. And so, you know, to me, my wife would be on the road, and I'm on crutches, and a lot of times it was just it was just me and Sweetie. And so Sweetie became like my Wilson from from. Uh, <laughs> Tom, the Tom Hanks movie, and uh, I'd sit and talk to Sweetie, and you know, it was, so you, you you're literally just by yourself, right? And and so that's hard. I mean, it's just it was it was a. I mean, like I said, I mean, people have had it worse than me, and and you know, it's not the end of the world, but it felt like the end of the world. And the one thing that I felt like, you know, I was sort of put on this earth to do, and that's play. I couldn't do it, and I wasn't a part of the team. I think the fans, like, you didn't want to show your face. You just. It was hard. It was a hard time, for sure. Would you get heckled in the arena when people would see you come out? How did people treat you when you were injured? I, you know, I never really got heckled until I came back to play in Orlando. <laughs> um, no, I, I, but you could feel it. Yeah. You could just feel the energy. You could feel where people, you know, are just tired of this, you know, same old result, same story. I never had anyone sort of directly come mm-hmm. to me in in my face or say anything but uh, and still haven't to this day but um you had, right if you had been on twitter back then you would have gotten it there, oh right yeah, think of how yeah, they're, it's yeah. a lot easier when it's people lot, don't have to face you well now people you know. people yeah. on twitter now they, yeah. they get me all the time for stuff <laughs> um but no I, you know yeah. and thankfully i didn't go through yeah. you know i didn't have all that happen during the, the age of social media but no there was, but you could feel it you could definitely feel it Support for the Woj Pod comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive power buying process. And here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then, once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep that new lower rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Woj. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. 
based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. When your career gets back on track in Phoenix, and did it just feel like found money, that there was an appreciation for being back, being able to play? You weren't the player. You weren't an MVP anymore. But you were playing, and you were contributing, and, and you were a very good player. Did it almost feel like you had two separate careers, and that was the beginning almost of another one? Yeah. No, I mean, when you go through all that, you, you do have an appreciation. And, you know, when I left Orlando, I could have stayed. And, you know, I... I felt like they were transitioning, Dwight Howard, Jameer Nelson, young players, uh, and they were, you know, as young guys, they would uh, defer to me, and they needed to grow in their leadership, and, and I think the team recognized that. I could feel that. It was it was a mutual thing, um, and then I almost thought about going back to Detroit, and that was an opportunity, but I think for me, I wanted my Detroit memories to be what they were, and I didn't want to do anything that would that would change that knowing I wasn't the same player. So Phoenix was great, a really good team, team that was knocking on the door, great medical training staff. I needed to finish my career on a good note, and I did that in Phoenix in a different way, which wasn't always easy. It wasn't always easy sort of changing your game and how you play, but I got a great sense of fulfillment, had a just tremendous amount of joy uh, playing in, in almost in a lesser role and more of a, of a role player. And I needed that. I, now, it's funny, now that I'm retired, I reflect, I feel like when I went through my injury ordeal, I lost that edge. I lost that, obviously physically I lost a lot, but I lost that mentality where you feel like you're the best player on the court. You know, in the 90s in Detroit, whether I was or I wasn't, I felt like if I'm going against Jordan, man, he's got to stop me. Like, that was the mentality. And I think, you know, I think most of the, the elite players have that mindset. And now I'm just like, I'm just happy to be back, you know, and, and, and which is a great thing. Mm-hmm. But I didn't and, – and probably the right thing. Like, I don't know if physically I could have done it. I probably would have had another injury if I tried to push myself to be on that, that level that I was before. But in some ways – 